this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Hey, next up, you're going to hear from a guy named Thomas Gorney, who, along with a partner, started a website hosting company called iPower in 2001. The guy started it with virtually nothing. A credit card is basically all they had at their disposal to finance the business. And over the next six years, the partners built the business to $40 million in revenue, which is when they merged it with a company called Endurance, one of their big competitors. So they ran the merged company then with Gorney as the largest shareholder for four years and then sold the combined entity to a private equity group for $975 million in 2011, which was interestingly just 10 years after Gorney had started the original business. His story reads like a rags to riches to rags to riches story, uh, which I think you're going to like. Pay special attention to a couple things. Number one, how he made and then lost his first fortune in the web hosting business and what Gorney did differently when he started a similar company in the same industry. Also listen for how he protected his downside using preferred shares when they merged iPower with Endurance. And also keep an ear out for the handful of business rules Gorney now lives by based on the experience of almost going broke. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Thomas Gorney. Thomas Gorney, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. You have an amazing story. And rather than me kind of recount it, I'd love to hear from you. You grew up in Poland. Tell me what that was like. Uh, it, was, it was interesting. Um, while I was growing up in Poland, for me, I considered this as, as a perfectly normal and happy childhood. I uh, grew up in a relatively poor family, and uh, but I had no complaints about how I have grown up. But I remember since my very early age, and my parents remind me on this, I, I believe I was six or seven, I started telling my parents that eventually I will be moving to America. And most likely where I got it from is was just watching uh, watching TV and, and maybe some Western American movies. And... Uh, and that and and that's carried me actually throughout my life because when I moved I moved later when at the age of fourteen to Germany, and I um, um, I kind of continued the dream coming to America, which I eventually uh, which eventually happened. I came to America when I have been I turned twenty, but when I was living in Poland uh, back then, you know I already had this entrepreneurial back. I was already kind of a hustler doing all different things and uh, as a kid. And so not even knowing what entrepreneurial means because it was a communistic country. But, you know, I was always 
trading things with other kids, organizing stuff. And so for, for me, being an entrepreneur was, wasn't something that, you know, kind of I defined myself as an entrepreneur, but it was something was just like part of my personality. What was so the, I, what was the yeah. most memorable hustle you had in Poland with other kids? What, what did you sell? Uh, you know, I, the probably most memorable things were where I took things from my parents' apartment and uh, found bias for them, uh, you know, di different little stuff that I thought my parents are not going to notice. <laughs> like I the toaster and the microwave, that kind of stuff? Uh, <laughs> you know, no, actually, we didn't have uh, such such advanced gadgets. It was like sim simple stuff. I don't even remember, but we're more, you know, kind of like little... Uh, little items that you would put on 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 furniture and stuff like that and then but i i thought of obviously they're not gonna notice and then uh they did and so i um i had to eventually uh return them back to them so <laughs> things uh, things like that i mean it and then you know and eventually although like i said my parents grew up uh, relatively uh, uh poorly i i my dad noticed at one point in time, you know, my kind of obsession with computers and he bought me an Atari. They, they managed to kind of save enough money to buy me like Atari 100. And so, so that was another story. So I was having, you know, there were very few people that had any computers. So number one, you know, I had to learn to program to even play my own games. But then I was inviting people to my house for, you know, small fee for them to participate and play on different on different games with me so so i was kind of you know using that as a way way to keep uh, buying more magazines which helped me then to program better and so on got it and so what prompted the trip to germany what was that uh, uh you know when poland was a communistic country and uh, it it it's silly it sound i happened to convince my parents uh to uh, move to Germany, um, and we had some f family living in Germany at that time. Moved to Germany because I felt that you know we can create better future for ourselves, and it didn't take much convincing. Um, it, it it was just that for my parents it w was difficult because it was the start of an entire brand new life. Even although you know Germany was economically significantly better than Poland, you know, but they, they had their life in Poland and they were kind of sad and, you know, in the late, mid, late forties. And so, uh, so that was a big move for them. But, but I en end up convincing them that this would be a good thing for the family. And then we end up moving to, uh, to Germany and where I also started my very first business. And and I on one side I like Germany, but going from you know from communism to back then social democracy, what was in Germany, was still not the quite the capitalism in the U.S. When I found when I started my first business, you know I noticed that um, it really was kind of tough to be a small business in Germany back then. Today today I think the environment changed quite a bit, but back then. Um, if you you know wanted to start a business, you were expected to have financing. You were expected to have an office. You were expected to have a advanced education in order to run a business. I didn't have any of that, and you were expected to be at certain age. So I was very ignored as a kind of young individual at 16 that was selling computers, and and then on top I had an accent, Polish accent, uh, which 
in Germany was wasn't that wall come and you know which which at that point you know being a 16 year old boy uh, I felt uh, you know I was I was kind of pissed about it because I felt like why why am I being disregarded why am I being ignored but I very quickly used this to my advantage because people weren't paying attention you know especially with the vendors that I dealt they were kind of ignoring me and and having a polish accent you were considered somewhat less intelligent than being a german or having a western european or american accent hmm. and so 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 people weren't paying much attention to the stuff that when i was negotiating with them things and so i had the saying back then i said maybe i think with an accent maybe i speak with an accent but i don't think with an accent <laughs> and 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 that's allowed me to really make some of the best deals of my life so i learned very quickly that be that being underestimated actually is it's a really good advantage in in business and in life. Love it, love it. So, what was that first business in Germany? It it was you know during the the PC revolution. It was in it was in com- computer business. I was essentially selling computers and uh, computer parts. And it was you know in early nineties, and that's where you know uh, DOS, uh, Microsoft has transitioned from DOS to Windows, and that's really kind of started the PC revolution. And everybody now was able to have computer because computers became significantly less complicated. And as part of that, you know, there were that market opened up and I used that to my advantage. I was still going to school, but, you know, in, like I said, in Germany, customer service was kind of very poor back then. And, and there were businesses that were charging pretty heavy prices for computers. So I started uh, started finding distributors where I wholesalers where I could buy the parts relatively cheaply, including importing them later on when my business became a little bit bigger. And I was selling them at, you know, low margin, kind of the Dell model, but I was doing high volume. And the way I was, I was promoting the business was because I was going through to, uh, to school. I, you know, I started putting flyers, in my school and then when that rock i started putting flyers in every adjacent school in the city that i live on universities i was promoting uh, the business on radio and i was promoting it also in papers and you know i was getting quite a bit amount of calls uh for and request for for computers and computer parts and so that business started growing really quickly and there was a very exciting time for me because there was just my first real introduction to you know having having my own business and being an entrepreneur how did you end up in america so uh you know like even i even back then when i moved to germany although although i liked germany i i always had that that i would say uh, obsession or that that the dream the, the American dream even when we you know when we learn about America in school I, I was thinking to myself one day I will be and will end up in America also I was very much interested uh, in American movies I, I loved American movies and back then in the 80s the, the the two movies that kind of shaped my coming to America were Beverly Hills 9210 it was the, the series <laughs> And, and, and it's a real story and Wall Street, right? And, I, and I, when I saw Wall Street, I said, I, I wasn't crazy about the corruption of that, you know, of, of that movie, but, but 
I loved the opportunity that America provided in that movie. And then, and then uh, Beverly Hills in uh, 9210, you know, was very intriguing to me because it was a super great place for young people to live. So I said to myself, if, you know, I want to go, you know, to America because of the opportunity of capitalism and, and being able to be anybody that you want to be. And uh, I want to live in Beverly Hills or Los Angeles because of Beverly Hills 9210. And so the very first time I came to America, I was, I think, 17. And, and I stayed here for a couple of months in, uh, in Santa Monica and Beverly Hills. And I felt in love. And so it was just a matter of time for me going back getting my uh, uh, my affairs together, making sure that, you know, I sell the business, have enough money to come over. And then two years later, at the age of 20, I was I landed in Los Angeles. And um, that's that's where my story started. Did you sell your computer parts business? Yeah, I did. Uh, but back then in the days uh, when especially in Germany, selling a business was significantly uh, different than it would be today. It was it was, you know, it, it I didn't didn't it, it, it was not such a lucrative proposition. Essentially, what I sold was the, the customer list. Uh, and uh, I got enough money scrapped together, which allowed me to come and get my life started in America. But it wasn't, you know, it wouldn't be considered to be a great outcome. It was, it was just good enough to, like I said, to, to get myself moved. But I understand in America, you had a success pretty early. My, my understanding is by the age of 22, you were a millionaire or something to that effect. But how, how yeah, did that happen? Yeah. I had a pretty, pretty good ride. I mean, I, I came to the United States to help somebody in 1996 to help somebody to start a web hosting company. And, uh, it was a friend of mine that, uh, also uh, lived in Germany before. He came to United States before me. And then um, he, uh, he asked me to join his business as a minority owner of the business and, and help him to build a web hosting business. And so um, I joined him in March of 1996. We started the company. Um, he had it already kind of un underway, but we started it together. And we started selling, selling web hosting. And a couple of years later, somebody approached us and we ended up selling that business in 1998. For those three years, actually, there was interesting time because I literally lived off, off three dollars a day. Because un, unbeknown to me, when I, I was kind of naive when I came to America, I didn't, you know, I didn't have any credit. So essentially, uh, when I came, came to the United States, everything I did, including getting an apartment, getting a card, even getting a credit card, I needed to put more money down than actually the credit I received, right? I had to prepay the apartment for, I believe, eight months ahead of time. I had to buy a car, uh, a cash, and then I bought like a shitty car that, you know, like if you're familiar with Los Angeles, there's the West and uh, uh, the, uh, the West side and, 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 and the Valley of Los Angeles and literally the car had tough time making over the hill. <laughs> and so, so, so I eventually had to abandon the car and I was pretty much, you know, taking the bus for the first couple of years. And then the opportunity came around and the minor, majority owner of the business decided to sell it, which was in benefit to me. And so we ended up selling the company in 1998 and then, um, we started another company that was then funded by SoftBank. And um, 
when we started that company, there was during that internet boom, during that crazy time, and we we, we got some funding for from SoftBank. We put some of our own money down, and um, what happened with that business essentially that most of our customers were internet companies or financial institutions, and as the internet companies end up going out of business around 2000, we, we started losing those customers, and then. Uh, the financial institutions, as the financial crisis was approaching, also were slowing down the spend uh, with us, and that also, you know, affected our ability to function. So we decided in um, middle of 2001, actually after September 11 of 2001, we decided to close the business. We never went bankrupt. We just we just literally closed the business, and essentially, you know, we pay off all the loans of the business, but every shareholder lost money. So I went from being a millionaire in 1998 to literally not knowing how I going to make my next mortgage in 2001. And, um, and that, but that was also the time where I established some rules for myself in terms of how I want to run businesses. Because until that point, either in Germany and in the US, I experienced good amount of success. And then when when we transitioned to the business that that failed, you know, I, there was a change in philosophy how we have built the businesses before versus how we built the business where we failed. And the change was that because we were funded by back then by SoftBank, you know, the the entire attitude around that time was you just start the business, you have an idea. You, you don't worry too much about revenue, just make sure that you get enough users on the platform and then take the business public. And to me, that entire concept was somewhat um, unfamiliar because I saw myself always as somebody that built businesses to create value for, for others. And I always got excited when my customers saw the value in what I provided to them. So as much as the materialistic part of the business, you know, kept, you know, the lights on and helped me to run the business and grow the business. I was more excited about the fact that my customers enjoy the products that we provide to them. And then when we, when we started the business in 98 with SoftBank, the entire philosophy was around wealth creation for shareholders, um, you know, and even my mindset shift a little bit about what my net worth is and how much I can increase my net worth by taking that business public within a couple of years. So that that dream and perception came to the end, but end up being one of the, I would say, the not even one of the, but the best experience in my life because it taught me several lessons. It taught me to go back to my um, original philosophy of building a business that is based on value. It helped me to uh, really establish few key rules that, that, that I carry with myself until today. One rule is building a business without an exit strategy. And I can explain later what I mean with that. Uh, building a business, like I said, that provides value, incredible value to customers. And number three, building a business and rocking only with good people that have the same values that that I have or similar values that I have. Um, because during throughout those three years, you know, I got exposed to people that 
that that didn't have the same values, that didn't have the same philosophy and and the outlook that I that I had. And that was a lesson that was really meaningful to me because it it taught me something. And also another thing that I wanted to do, I wanted to start a business on my own without venture money. Now that's kind of difficult to do when you don't know how to pay your net mor- next mortgage. Um, but the one good thing I had was a good credit and a credit card. And and essentially, in 2001, in October, I started iPower uh, with a partner of mine on a credit card. And uh, this is how we finance the business. You know, we, we basically use the credit card to put money into marketing. And then... Uh, we, we, you know, we were getting customers and then paying the credit card off and then, you know, kind of getting more customers and then using the money to build an operation, hire people and keep paying the credit card off. And, and so, and, and the reason why I went, maybe one, one more thing I want to share with you is the reason why I went back to, to web hosting, essentially, this is what iPower was, is because when we left web hosting in 98, as much as I was excited that we sold the business, uh, I felt that um, that there was so much wrong more to be done in web hosting, because my inspiration being in technology actually comes from the late 80s, beginning 90s, where you know I have seen firsthand Microsoft and and Apple transition from uh, from like pro- products like those to graphical interface products, where now I said to myself from that point on, that when I work on technology, I wanna work on technology and dedicate myself to make technology simpler for people so everybody can use technology without technical knowledge. And so in 98, the web hosting industry reminded me very much on the early days of the computer industry of the DOS era, where really in order for somebody to have a website, they needed a webmaster, programmer, web designer, and it was for most businesses cost prohibitive to have a website. And so so this was kind of a bittersweet victory. Although I was very excited we sold the business, I felt that we're going to miss an opportunity to make an impact on an industry. But what happened between 1998 and 2001 is that a lot of the good web hosting companies got acquired by shitty web hosting companies. And those companies went, end up either going out of business because they went public too early or they end up really not performing very well. And so the, throughout those three years, nothing really changed in the web hosting industry. So I saw this as a big opportunity for us to make a major impact in hosting and launch essentially this graphical interface that would allow everybody to eliminate the middleman and allow everybody to have a website. And this is exactly how the success of iPower started because before we launched this product, we were acquiring more like 300 customers a month, like three customers a day, and it was a grind. But as soon as we launched our graphical interface that we called VDEC, which was essentially the most advanced uh, a product in the marketplace where you were able to build, manage, promote, and profit from a website from an intuitive screen, including you had uh, 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 power plugins like an app store in there where you were able to install application to your website, interactive application to your website. And we, and as soon as we launched this early 2002, literally we went from 300 customers a month 
within few months to be to to acquire over 10,000 customers every single month and we became the fastest growing web hosting company in United States and in the world. Wow. So that's so that and and that was that was the uh, and that's that that's you know it was like the momentum that we have created. It was incredible. It was incredible to watch to see this and you know we were very proud that we actually you know we really transforming industry. We created a market that that didn't existed before and really allow significantly larger amount of people to really have a website and made it affordable literally for everybody to to have a website that's interesting because it, you know when i think of web hosting i think of the the plumbing of a website i think of companies like rackspace that basically provide you a server to to run the thing i don't think of a graphical interface i think of companies like um, I don't know, uh, Wix or Shopify that help you create a website. Um, it sounds like you kind of jammed both those two things together into one product. Uh, you're right. And, and you, you know, and, and Wix today is kind of the next generation of what we have created. Essentially, what we have created, I mean, you know, we have created the, you know, Windows 95 version of what Wix is today. And, uh, and so, so what, as you probably recall, right? I mean, like when Windows 95 came around, it was like this big deal because it allowed really everyone to do significantly more that without any technical knowledge, with a, with a click on a mouse, um, that they were able to do before. And this is exactly what, what we did. We really created what, what I would say the transition from DOS to Windows. We created the transition from... Um, uh, what was back then telnet wsftp all technical products that uh, html programming to s something very intuitive that somebody without no technical knowledge was able to do a website so what you're looking at wix today when you're looking at wix today essentially we were the first version of that yeah. with a lot of w gadgets around that and plugins and that's what really started the success of Alpawa. Thomas, how did you finance the development of the graphical interface? Essentially, all you know on 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 credit cards, and uh, you know we had literally, I mean, just one programmer, myself, and another person rocking with me. We were three, four people in the office. You know, I was rocking for free, and then everybody else. You know, I I managed to. Um, get really good people that were willing to take a chance on the business and 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 they were willing to forgo on the beginning some of the salary with the promise that you know i would pay them significantly more when the business becomes more successful and so um so we were able really i mean we scraped it together it was i mean with you know with sublet in office literally a closet it's a, there was somebody who had an o little office and they had a closet and i asked if i could use the closet <laughs> so i took all that so i took all this kind of furniture that was you know kind of like on the shelves took the shelves down used those shelves as a desk and then then got you know a couple of employees with me literally two employees with me in that room and you know I was I was working on marketing, designing the website. My brother helped me with designing the website as well. I mean, it was it was this really scrappy entrepreneurial way 
how you would start a business. But it was exciting. It was, you know, I, I losing, I never, one of the things I didn't do, because I went, you know, from being really poor, becoming a millionaire slash multimillionaire to literally losing everything. I didn't look back at myself and I say, I need to make it back. I, after I established those rules that, that I want to have a good business, I want to provide good value, and I want to be excited w- of what I do, I was, my entire goal was to, to generate $5,000 a month so I can pay my, my mortgage, my car payment, and I have a little money to live. And that was, that was my target. Everything else was around the business. I was focusing on the business, right? So, so, and, and, and that mindset really helped me also let go of the past. I, you know, I had even because the company that acquired us, they acquired us for cash in 98 and some stock. And I had some stock in the business as well. And that stock at one point was worth, you know, several millions of dollars. And then I watched that, that value disappear overnight. And essentially, when I cash out of the stock, I cash out for, I believe, like $6,000. I used that $6,000 for buying two servers so I can host my customers on it. You know, so that's kind of how I, how I got started. But again, it was, I, I didn't look back uh, and, and, and I wasn't looking back to make back the money that I that 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 I had for me it was more about the principles and focusing on the business so tell us about uh, tell me about the 2007 deal because you grew from 2001 admittedly you, you got from 300 customers a month to 10,000 what happened in 2007 uh, absolutely so um you know we were literally competing head to head with GoDaddy throughout you know 2002 Thomas with who uh, GoDaddy Oh, GoDaddy. Okay, GoDaddy. Yeah, got yeah. it. Sorry, yeah. I just didn't. Yep, got it. I'm with you. Yeah, it, it is my accent. No, so, no, so. <laughs> it's my <laughs> listening inability. Go, keep going. Uh, uh, I I believe more my accent than you listening abilities, <laughs> but it's all good. So, uh, so GoDaddy was back then uh, in in the early 2000, 2002, 2003, only a domain name provider. Uh, iPower I was only web hosting provider, but we also provided domain names as well because we made it as part of the hosting offering. So in the early days, actually, GoDaddy was sending most of the customers to us because they didn't have the web, host, web hosting offering until they figure out that it's a very lucrative proposition. And then beginning of 2003, 2004, they started. They started just having their own web hosting offering as well. But even at that point in time, we were competing head to head with GoDaddy. We were very similar size until GoDaddy launched the their famous Super Bowl commercial. And they that commercial really put them on the map and they took off. And they became significantly faster growing company than ours. And we were still growing very, very fast. We were still for pure web hosting business, the fastest growing web hosting business for several years after that. But, you know, we saw ourselves, you know, competing against the big guys like like GoDaddy, not necessarily against, you know, like the, the smaller providers, although we respected everybody in the market. And so 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 
during the time, 2004, 2005, the barrier to entry for web hosting also became significantly smaller. Everybody could have could have a web hosting company because now there were enough tools available for many people to start web hosting businesses. So the web hosting industry essentially got extremely fragmented. And as a result of the of iPower success, and I don't mean to be arrogant about it, but it truly it 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 we had a lot to do with that. Many people that we knew started their own web hosting companies, and so now you know we were kind of the 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 the, the beginning of that wave of of kind of that web hosting evolution, uh, and so so the market, like I said, became extremely fragmented. And so what usually happened to fragmented market, right, over time, they tend to consolidate, especially if there is a low barrier to entry. So what we what we wanted to do in 2006, 2007, we wanted to be the company that starts consolidating those businesses. But our technology was not really uh, allowing us to do this because we didn't build our platform to be able to uh, integrate other web hosting companies into our universe. But then there was this company Endurance that, and, and they did nothing else essentially, but acquiring small web hosting companies and, and using leverage. They were primary private equity owned and they used, they used leverage to buy them. And so they built over seven, eight years, a business that was $20 million in revenue. And so they were reaching out to us all the time because they wanted to acquire us. And I was, I kept telling them, you cannot afford us. What this. was your revenue at the time, Thomas? Uh, our revenue at the time in 2007 was uh, uh, like 40 plus million dollars. And we were growing at the rate of like 50%. And so, uh, so essentially next year was 60 million and so on. And, uh, and so... So they were 20, we were, we were 40 million. And I said, guys, you cannot afford us. And they claim they have access to money and so on. And, um, you know, I was not very interested to sell. I, I, I got approached by one in one, which is it was back then the largest internet company in Europe. Uh, and, you know, I was not interested to sell as well. But seeing kind of the writing on the wall, how fragmented the industry is and wanting to continue to make significant impact in the industry, I knew that we want to be part of that consolidation wave. But we don't want to be consolidated, we want to be one of the consolidators. And so so eventually I end up talking to Endurance, knowing that they have the ability and the platform to do this. And we end up merging our businesses together in uh, mid-late 2007. And we, we join our forces. Now, Endurance didn't have the capabilities to acquire customers organically. So we brought that skill set to the table. And we didn't have the capabilities to do acquisitions. And they have brought uh, that skill to the table. And so, together, we, we can, became pretty, pretty kind of complete business. So you got... Uh, you you were twice the size. Uh, you were growing organically, so you would have been worth a lot more than endurance at the time. This is correct. We were, and in the deal with Strike was that we did get a little bit of liquidity, but essentially, my partner and I, uh, aside of the private equity, uh, we were the largest uh, shareholders in the business. I was actually the largest individual shareholder in that business, and so. 
and and the company that that uh, that was the private equity company uh, was a company from Boston, Audex. And actually, Audex, you know, never owned back then a internet or a technology company. They were more of a commodity type of private equity. And so um, we actually even had to convince them to do the deal with iPower and, and convince them that merging iPower and Endurance was a good good deal. And so uh, after we integrated iPower with Endurance a year later, uh, the, the value of the company, I, mean, I think, quadrupled at that point. And, and Audex really at that point, you know, wasn't really interested because they didn't understand the business as well as we did. And again, they weren't technology guys, although, you know, I had made great experience with them. They have been very supportive throughout the time they, 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 they when I worked with them. You know, they decided that it is time for them to get out of the business. And so, so we ran a process in 2008 uh, th- during the worst crisis that there was right uh, in the last i don't know 50 years and um and there was a there was a private equity out of silicon valley called excel kikiar and that private equity got really interested in us because they really believed the consolidation strategy and they were able to provide us additional capital to continue to acquire more businesses and so we end up making a deal with them and they essentially replace Audex. And then again, we got a little bit of liquidity as well. And they became, you know, 50 plus percent owner of that business at that point in time. So Thomas, I've got to ask. So, I mean, you're an entrepreneur. At six years old, you're selling stuff off your parents' sofa. Um, how did you protect yourself as an entrepreneur? Um, going into a deal with endurance where instead of getting 100% liquidity, you were essentially rolling the dice, rolling your equity into some larger play. I mean, how did you ensure you weren't going to get swallowed up by the snakes on the other side? You know, I mean, I got very comfortable with the people uh, and and the vision of the people behind the business. Yeah, but there's a difference between, I mean, you've got a $40 million business growing 50% a year. That is a huge asset, right? Worth millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. You got to go beyond comfort, right? Like, yes, I I get the fact you're comfortable with them, but how did you protect yourself legally to ensure they couldn't basically dilute you, get rid of you? What what sort of protections did you uh, have? So, so essentially, I mean, we 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 got when we when we uh, sold the business a preferred equity. Right. And so and, uh, you know, we we got a board seat. Um, we, um, we we you know, we were essentially the largest uh, individual shareholders. And, uh, you know, although, you know, like we, together with the private equity, we together we were able to, you know, kind of make the decisions of what would happen with the business. So it would be very tough for to take the business in a different direction without our blessing, having the stake in the business that we have. You had and one. That, you that, had one board seat. Uh, yes, but that you know. But at the same time, again, you know, like it, it for a private equity company, they were actually relying on us to kind of set the direction of the business because we un- we understood the business significantly better than 
than they did. And so not only on us, but also on the endurance management team as well. I mean, the endurance management team was an excellent team. And uh, and the other thing is how I got comfortable is essentially, uh, you know, the endurance team uh, uh, had not they didn't have any financial outcomes. So for them, it was in best interest to protect the integrity of the merger. Because without protecting that integrity of the merger, they would eventually could end up with nothing, right? So so, so on the end, yes, we had contractual protections that, that would put us in a, you know, if there would be, if if they ultimately you know would be something that we we wouldn't want to do that we could you know raise our hand and and um, you know create enough noise. Having said that, you know you gotta get comfortable with the people. And and I know it sounds maybe a little bit naive, but on the end, you know businesses are run by people, and you can protect yourself only so much, right? And uh, to me. To me, this was a strategic play. To me, this wasn't about selling a business in 2007. To me, this was uh, about looking at the industry, looking how fragmented it is, looking that endurance has the strategy of acquiring businesses, that endurance has really the platform and capabilities of acquiring businesses, and that iPower has the platform to tech, regardless what we acquire, if, they, if those businesses grow or not, be able to build those businesses to growing businesses, right? To me, that was a, you know, very high synergistic deal and very rare, as as we know, right? Mergers most of the time don't go well. Uh, I I got a lot of comfort. We we rock on the deal for over one year and a half before we made that happen. So this wasn't something, you know, we just met those guys. Uh, and then three months later, we're signing a contract. I mean, it, it took us very long to get really comfortable that we are going to be taking that in the right direction. Can you explain how preferred shares work and and how that gave you some protection? Essentially, uh, if there is an outcome, sell of the business, uh, everybody who has the preferred equity get paid first. And there are t- sometimes preferences on the preferred equity, essentially saying, you know, you get preferred equity plus 10% coupon f- annually. Or, you know, there are preferred equities where you get paid twice as much as the common stock. And so that, you know, allows you to give get enough protection, even if something goes wrong, that you know that uh, you will be the first in line that you get paid uh, before any other shareholders. Did the endurance so, guys get preferred equity as well? Preferred shares? Oh, as well? On, no, only only the uh, only the uh, uh, um, the private equity guys. No, no, nobody within the business. So, so you got preferreds as well as the private equity, but nobody else. Correct. And then later, later on, when we rolled, when we sold to Excel Kikiar, essentially, when they bought the stake in the business. Um, you know, everybody who has transferred equity from the prior deal got preferred equity as well. Um, but, but you know, stock option holders that got new stocks, stock option would not get preferred equity. Well, I appreciate you sharing the, uh, the story and the, and, the, and the details. I'd be curious to know how your relationship has evolved with your parents through this, this time. Um, 
at age 14, you convinced them to leave their home country and go to Germany so you could sort of um, fulfill your dreams, I guess. And I, and I wonder, have you been able to thank them for that? Oh, yeah, I, I believe so. All the, I, I, I think, um, you know, I try, I, I try to, let's put it this way. Um, and um, I, I think that you know, I have a very good relationship with my parents. Uh, and, you know, I, I try to help them every, everywhere where I can. But, you know, my, I don't think so my parents quite fully understand and comprehend the scope of the things that I do. Uh, and you know, it's not even that important to me because it's not, you know, I am the son and it, it, it ultimately doesn't matter, you know, the level of, of, you know, accomplishment or success as you would call it right in kind of like, uh, uh, commercial terms I have had, I mean, for, for them, uh, it's more important that, you know, that I eat well and I keep healthy. So, <laughs> well, I'm sure they're very proud of you. I, uh, I appreciate you telling us your story, Thomas. It's just an amazing story and inspiration for everyone listening. So I, I appreciate you telling the story. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.